calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Podiobooks.com, in association with pjballantine.net and writersexchange.com, presents Weaver's Web, written and read by Philippa Ballantyne. Solistra stood looking towards the mountains. The air was chill from more than the weather. Behind her spread the small camp of scarlet wolves that the four men she was travelling with had gathered. The presence of a mother had given their effort status, many heeding the call that might otherwise have ignored it. Thus was she as culpable as they were. Not for the first time, Solistra wished that Lou had remained with them rather than going to the moot. She was unsure of herself in this nearly exclusively male domain of swords, armour and the slow tramp of approaching death. They were about to broach the Lystra Mountains, the most unforgiving area of Crisfell, and in the middle of winter. The divine in her head was silent on the intelligence of this move, and that in itself was worrying. A sound came from behind her. She didn't need to turn her head to know that it was Merrick. The quiet islander had seemingly elected himself her guardian in this wilderness, and took his job seriously. It was he that had handed her a sensible, undecorated leaf and cloak, once the velvet outfit she'd set off in had proved itself frivolous. He made no comments. She felt the silence more than he, used to the almost constant hum of the divine in her head, now absent. She needed to fill the gap. Do we go tomorrow morning, then? Merrick had brought her a thick, fur-lined cloak from the tent, and he draped it around her. Guston says that the weather will be right, and he has finally found a guide willing to show us. Snow was not far off, and Solistra drew the cloak about her with a shiver. Hard to believe that Ashy may cross that all by herself. For a moment or two, they looked up at the shrouded mountain, covered in darkness, but a domineering presence nonetheless. Merrick shifted wearily. She had no guide, no food, and her horse died on the second day. She certainly is a force of nature. Solistra kept her voice even. Ashime was a fine leader, and a strong woman that she could admire, but still she unnerved her. The warrior was as much of a towering presence here among the wolves as the mountains. Raffing remembrances she could never join in. Solistra had never understood how Ashime had gained such notoriety, but perhaps now she was getting a taste of it. The duke had had his pick of court ladies, all talented, some exceptionally beautiful, and yet he had chosen to spend the last few years with Ashime. Perhaps it was because... 
the messenger was a woman's man, spending most of her time in their company and sharing things in common with them. Solistra had never really been that sort of woman. Indeed, Lou was the only man she'd ever really known, him and now Merrick. He was glancing at her, his expression unreadable. She certainly is. But her greatest gift is her friendship. Well, she certainly inspires it around her, and the mother will that that is enough. Solistra shuddered, realising for the first time she was about to walk in her tracks. He didn't reply. Hey! A muffled shout came from downhill, and then the sound of someone trudging through the snow towards them. It was Crinus. He looked none too happy. Now he was bundled in thick furs, and his hair was frosted with ice. Food's ready. Come on, get it before it freezes, like the rest of us. All three half slid down to the camp where the air was marginally warmer. Kristen and Rosso were huddled around the meagre fire, dipping bread and piping hot stew and risking their mouths in order to wolf it down. Crinus handed out bowls to Merrick and Solistra. It's good, Rosso burped loudly and then grinned at the others. Crinus, I think you're improving your cooking. Give an ash a run for her money at last. His friend shot him a dirty look but said nothing. Gustin finished first and slipped back onto his pack. Oh, I wonder how she's doing. He looked across at Mirak as if half expecting a reply. None came. Ah, Rosa chuckled. Perhaps she's caught up with the Duke. Wouldn't want to be him right now. They all laughed at the very images that conjured up. Solistra shook her head. Around them the camp was even more boisterous. The wolves had not seen each other for years, and there were all types of reunions going on about them. The air was stained with a variety of bawdy songs, and accompanied by badly played instruments. But in truth, these men were shocked by the changes they'd found in their former comrades. Rosso, Merrick, Guston, and Crinus were still young compared to most of the others. The wolves had numbered at least a thousand, and they had barely half that number now. Just as Connor had predicted, nearly all of the wolves had retired to their plots of land and set about becoming farmers. Swords and axes were hung over the fireplaces and lost their edge. Muscles softened and became fat. And worst of all, the instinct for battle faded. The odd one or two had remained in the military, but they were rare. The four friends didn't speak of it, but they were disturbed. They had dreamed of leading the Scarlet Wolves as they remembered them, and the reality was a bitter dose. Perhaps they would actually take some comfort by leaving the next morning. Solistra would not. Her powers, which she had previously never doubted, now seemed elusive. If only Lou was here to discuss this with. Suddenly the friendly atmosphere was shattered with hoarse shouts and the distinctive rush of flame. All five dropped their meals and raced to see what was happening. The men swept up their weapons while Solistra trusted in the divine. Merrick made sure he reached the commotion before her. A small gathering at the edge of the camp was in disarray. Three half-armoured wolves were beating about through nearby bushes, while one of their number lay prone by upset bowls and food. Solistra blanched. Sheets of smoke rolled from the body, engulfing them in the smell of charred flesh. The skin was boiled away from his face. Eyes and hair were roasted beyond recognition. Solistra dropped to her knees and placed her hand on his brow, hoping against hope. No spark remained to be saved. Ever practical, the men were already joining the other three warriors. A lot of shouting and arm-waving ensued, very distant to her. Divine surged in her head, throwing reality aside as she tried to make sense of its call. Are you all right? Merrick, she realised, had stayed at her side and was now pulling her away from the dead man, dragging her clear of the chaos. She turned away from the scene, forcing her mind into some sort of clarity. She held up her hand to forestall him. There's something here. 
You're some amazing mother, one of the older wolves bellowed at her. Solistra could taste his fear, coppery in her mouth. He wanted something to strike at, but had nothing. Through his eyes, she saw the death of a friend he had known for nearly twenty years. All was sweet reminiscences, with a touch of melancholy. Four old comrades round a fire with a bit of ale in their belly. Nothing was more pleasant on a cold winter's night. Through the distortion of the drink and emotion, Solistra saw what he had only half seen. It was movement in the corner of his eye, a mere flicker of something in the bushes. Cathal went to retrieve his mug from the near fire. A surge of heat flared up from it, at least seven feet high, fueled by unearthly power. His companion went down, no time even to scream as flame engulfed his head and upper body. He was like a candle for a brief moment. The fire died just as swiftly, leaving his smouldering corpse, and this told the mother all she feared. Gustin was at her shoulder. Makers? Was there any doubt? Solistra rose wearily, her head spinning a little from the effort. Rosa looked down at the burnt man. Oh, sweet mother, this is the fourth attack. Are we wearing a sign around our neck? Merrick dropped a blanket over the corpse, while Crinus helped the other wolves search fruitlessly through the bushes. Nothing could be found, the maker having melted back into the darkness. Solistra would normally have depended on her divine senses to seek him out. It should have been easy, but it wasn't. She said nothing to her protectors, not wishing to destroy their faith in her. Though, of course, by now, it was probably eroding by itself. Gustin jerked his cloak closer around him and ran a nervous eye through the dark. I know Garen has assembled makers at Skellig, but I thought they were normally more elusive. These are just more than random attacks. Someone wants us to be afraid. Rosso voiced the thoughts that they had all been having. Solistra could feel their eyes on her. They didn't need to say it. She was not doing her job. But of course it was impossible to explain the fickleness of her powers to them. The divine chose its own time and place to manifest. Mothers and godlings did not like to spread this sort of information around, better by far to leave the masses with a feeling of security. Gustin found a place for the three shocked wolves at another fire, and sent others to deal with the dead man. The five trailed back to their own circle, disturbed and angry. When they were seated once more, Gustin confronted her. We need to know, mother, just what's going on. Makers are dangerous, yes, but never like this, attacking armed men and with such subtlety. It's just not the way they operate. Obviously a week or so of travelling with them had stripped some of her mystique away. Solistra was not used to being addressed in such a manner, but diplomatically decided that now was not the time to argue. As she may had set her the task of helping these men, and so far she knew she had failed miserably. Even talking about the makers sent shudders through her. Such issues were for divine moots and conclaves, not usually discussed with laypeople. Makers are abominations. They warp and transform nature and the elements to their own will, much as weavers manipulate flesh. Yet they have always been unstable creatures, people whose minds cannot handle the immense power they wield without the aid of the divine. My order has made a specific study of makers, as they reflect badly on powers we mothers hold dear. Well, Rosa said grumpily, would you mind sharing some of your knowledge with us mere mortals, since they seem to have adopted us as their favourite target? Merrick glowered at his friend. Solistra cleared her throat. <clears throat> Makers, all that we've managed to study, are what you might call mad. 
They have no concept of reality and are easily frightened by it. No maker is usually a match for a prepared mother. I don't like the way she said, usually, Quinnis muttered darkly, his eyes scanning the night. Lately, though, Solistra continued, we know of several very powerful makers that it has taken an octave of mothers to stop. Also, they seem to have developed a remarkable sense of purpose, as compared to their usual lack of cohesive thought. This isn't really what we wanted to hear, Kristen said. Solistra clenched her teeth. Then, you probably won't like this any better. These attacks seem to be the work of a group of makers, working in tandem to enhance their powers. This is something no mother has ever seen. Rosa groaned. Ash said this was going to be a breeze. I should remember not to listen to her. She did not, Merrick snapped. We have to do the best we can with what we've got. Solistra kept her thoughts to herself. Makers were simple beings, which at best could only be set on one course. Something drew them to this gathering, something visible on the ethereal plane. She had searched and searched, and yet it remained hidden. It could be that one of the men was not what he seemed. The best she could hope for was that he would be left behind when they broke camp for the Lystra Mountains. The last thing anyone wanted was to be pursued by makers through the howling peaks. Thinking it made Solistra glad she had not given voice to it. These men had enough to worry about. As they turned in for the night, she whispered a little prayer to the Divine to keep them safe. Any help right now would be comforting. Emerging out into the light, Jerris felt its heart lift. Mero and Massey were almost laughing as they reached down and helped their new friend to the surface. That was great! Mero flopped down on the thick grass, buoyed by the amazing power of the young to forget horror. <laughs> he didn't even see that we were there! Massey plucked an emerald blade of grass and then slipped it into her mouth like the farm girl she was. How could you do that? Her eyes reflected no fear at all. Jerris frowned. The power had always been, but coming close to other weavers seemed to have triggered it to flowering. The agony that Giselle had inflicted on him was like the pain of birth, affecting its awakening. Suddenly, Jerris didn't feel like a freak, or any longer like merely a follower. It had discovered its real value, not only to itself, but also to Ashime. It reveled in this new feeling. Looking at the two youngsters, though, brought it back to earth. Hero worship shone in their eyes. They had no fear and that was a very bad thing. Jerris shrugged on the guise of masculinity. With a twinge, it remembered Massey's comment. Was it falling into the same trap as it had with Nisha? Then let's go get this boat! Miro leapt to his feet, his face alight and hot with the thought of saving the clan. No doubt he also wanted to impress Massey. Jerris held up his hand, casting about with his other senses. Several weavers were above ground. A few were down by the village, though none were primes, and off the coast, on a lone, dark ship that was already Ashime and the clan's best chance. Stay close, he ordered, already dampening the impression they made in the ether. Nodding seriously, they took up a position on each side, sure of his ability to protect them. None challenged their approach, sheltered as they were by Jerris's power. They hunkered down in the whipped grass on the verge, overlooking the remains of Dunleary. From here they could see a large group of the enemy standing at the edge of the beach, perhaps twenty or so sinister figures. The water lapped at their feet, but they remained quiet, 
eyes all turned to a distant point. Jairus concentrated, trying to get a taste of the communion they were obviously sharing, but their thoughts were dim and alien. What's in that direction? he asked Mero, feeling stymied. The lad looked at him as if he was quite mad. <laughs> Nothing. Only the wide deep that way. Nothing at all but water. The ocean must end somewhere. The weavers must come from some place. The two youngsters shuddered at such a thought. What sort of place could spawn such things? Certain things still remained shuttered from it. Questions about its origins that stayed hidden, despite all that it had been through. Perhaps that too would come. Oh no! Jerris pushed Mero and Massey further into the grass, as it felt the approach of a power far stronger than it had experienced thus far. They emerged from the ocean, eyes wide, mouths gaping. Peoples whose murky eyes concealed more horrors than Jerris could imagine. Primes. Three powerful ones, which it could feel like a pulse inside its head, like blood running through its veins. They were not searching for Jerris. They were there merely to secure the tunnels and to rope in the last of Ashime's clan. These thoughts were apparent to it, but the rest were tightly locked away. Little hope remained of securing the ship under the very noses of these more powerful weavers. Jerris had been counting on using the same trick that had worked so well before on the other black ship. He whispered the implications to Mary and Massey. Maybe they'll move on. Hmm, perhaps, Jerris nodded. But we must wait. We gain nothing from rushing in now. We must trust to your clan's ability to hold on for a little while longer. Dusk was settling over the island, the sun flaming on the sea. The three of them watched it pass through the flickering blades of grass. Flashes of scarlet and pink lit up the sea and shore. It did not capture the weaver's attention. Under the direction of the primes, they began to empty out the remains of Dunmeri. A bag of grain, jars of pickled fish, everything of value was piled up on the shoreline and was ferried across to the black ship bobbing in the harbour. Mero and Massey watched with pale faces as all they had ever known was broken down and carted away. The implications were clear. Nothing was to be left, not flesh, nor anything to support flesh. Jerris felt their pain, wishing there was some way to spare them. Rest now. I will watch. They made pillows of the sweet-smelling grass and closed their eyes to the scene. Little enough rest had been theirs lately, but they were safer with him than they had been for weeks. Jerris rested, hands on knees, eyes averted from the town. His weaver senses whispered to him of the happenings below, without the need to actually watch. Perhaps it was the nearness of his kind that heightened sensation. Their thoughts pressed lightly on him, like the soft caress of the breeze. Extending his powers, he had a hint of the clan's people in the distance, and a tremor of Ashime's presence. It comforted him to know that she was all right. Was she wondering about him too? Blood spoke to blood. Flesh to flesh, and soul ruled them all. The weaver's creed, never truer than now, he knew. The stars were bright above, the breeze cool, and the sound of the waves soothing. All of these things were elemental, eternal. Whatever happened to the clan, these would always be the same. The thought was both frightening and calming. So Jerris spent the night reflecting on many things, but always aware of the weavers below, with equal measures of fright and excitement. With dawn's reluctant light, things had changed. Mero and Massey had curled up together like kittens, and Jerris smiled to see them so. It was funny how when they awoke they sprang apart, embarrassed, confused at their own feelings. Humans were odd creatures indeed. 
What's happening? Mera asked, rubbing his eyes to conceal his flush. Only one prime remains, Jerris said. The others slipped away into the tunnels. The ships are loaded with supplies, and they have destroyed the houses. No shelter for any humans that escaped them, Massey observed darkly, her eyes conspicuously bright. No. Mero drew a wickedly long dagger and strapped the small pack onto his back. Let's go get the ship. The clan must survive, but they can't have much time left. We have one problem, Jerris said, rising to his haunches. While there is only one prime, I will have to use all of my powers against it. Deception cannot be used against this one. I must overcome it with all my strength. Do you think you two can get aboard the ship alone? Massey smiled wickedly. The clan has ways, Jerris. She opened her small pack and fished out an elaborately carved box. When she opened it, Jerris smelled the odour that had turned his stomach in Crisfell. Metathale, she half-whispered, taking a pinch between her fingers. Rare but useful. Mero also took some. With a small amount of spit, it rubbed together until it made a wad of green paste. Jerris felt nauseous being this close to it. His flesh crawled. His mind felt slow and awkward, and his eyes seemed to find other places to be. Go, the girl said, already turning away. Fight your battles. We'll get to the ship. The two of them placed the herb beneath their tongue and began to make for the beach. Immediately their forms were obscured, taking on the insubstantiality of a mere animal. Obviously, Metathale had various uses. Jerris, too, started down the hill. The Prime immediately saw him. This one was a chameleon. All the best flesh skills combined with a sharp intelligence. Sensing Jerris and his talents, it hissed its mockery. You have been too long among them. Its form flickered and changed, hard on the eye, hard on the soul. It was bear, horse, man, and nothing at all. You have hoard your skills and blunted them. Become nothing. Come and die. Jerris didn't reply, maintaining only the most tenuous hold on the link between them, just enough to keep its attention from Mero and Massey, who were now entering the water. It was curiously unafraid, all its blood racing, senses alive. Was this what Ashime had spoken of when she'd been recuperating? Was this how life ignited in the face of danger? In the shadow of death, Jerris remembered her saying, this is living. Catching a little of that thought, the prime roared and charged. You will, you will die, 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 and your and flesh, flesh will be meat for the others. the others. Its shape altered, flowing into that of a large cat with sabre teeth and razor claws, all fueled by a sharp, cunning intelligence. Jerris's control of form was, by contrast, he knew, insignificant, and his range far less. He drew his twin blades and waited. The exchange of blows was fast and furious, almost impossible for an observer to see. Weaver's blood on both their sides fueled speed and strength. While his opponent flickered from bear to wolf to cat, Jerris struck with his full male strength and moved in female form agilely away. They danced and wove strange alien patterns in the sand, and blood blossomed from both. You are, are half-breed, incomplete, the prime taunted, circling warily. Jerris did not even spare a thought in its direction. A tendril of awareness told it that Mero and Massey had reached the ship and were scrambling silently over the side. The time to end this was now, when it still had the chance to do so. It had kept its thoughts hidden from the prime deliberately. Now it yanked the shield aside, letting the full force of memory and emotion race across the divide between them. 
All the pain and loneliness it had experienced in its years on Crisfell, all of the fear and loathing heaped upon it, nothing was held back. Weavers were never alone. It was an alien concept that shattered the Prime's concentration. While its enemy battled a flood of sensation, Jerris moved. It lashed out with one foot, thundering into the windpipe of the Prime, caught halfway between man and beast. Spinning, Jerris slashed its head from its body in a bloody arc, making it merely meat, and sundering the Alpha's hold on it. The backwash of pain and shock was almost enough to bring Jerris to its knees. The swords fell numbingly from its hands as it grasped its own throat. Luckily, the rest of the weavers were also stunned. A subhuman moan echoed along the shore. Quickly, Jerris gathered itself and surged to its feet. It dimly managed to scoop up its blades before staggering in the direction of the sea. Mero and Massey waved at it from the deck of the black ship. Gasping and gagging on the pain, Jerris swam towards them, all the time feeling the weavers behind, struggling to be free. When they hauled it aboard, the touch of their hands almost made it scream. Mate a it stammered weakly, flesh recoiling. Oh, sorry! The two clanspeople spat the dark wads of herbs from their mouths hurriedly. Jerris sighed and leaned against the forecastle. Already its wounds were sealing themselves, and the song in its mind fading. Miro and Massey hurried around, setting the rigging to sail, all the time keeping a wary eye on the shore. But it was not from the shore that the danger lay. An angry spout of water erupted from the starboard side as a prime leapt high and landed squarely on the main deck. The air came alive with the scent of seaweed and flesh. Massey was aloft in the rigging, Miro struggling with the anchor. Jerris rolled to its feet, blades once more in its hands. The ship pitched beneath their feet as it responded to the command of the weaver. The prime glared at Jerris, its vertical eyes flickering, and its feathery gills shimmering against its cheek. Worse, Jerris could sense more closing in on them from below the surface. All of its remaining power was focused on the ethereal battle with the prime for control of the ship. Cut, cut the anchor! A harsh whisper was all that it could manage from the corner of its mouth. Mero, more are coming. Cut the anchor. The lad did not need to be asked. Putting his dagger crosswise in his mouth, Mero scrambled over the side until he was hanging directly next to where the anchor rope exited from the side of the ship. He began to soar at the cord. Leave them. This prime cajoled Jerris in beguiling tones, giving no sign of the anger its kin had tried to use. They are nothing. Give over your fear. And hurt. Come within us again. The thought gave him pause. To be loved and accepted as no human could offer. But then it remembered. It was love, not for itself, but for the strength that would give the whole. Perhaps its fear and hurt was as much a part of it as anything they could offer. Perhaps, Jerris thought, that is what makes me a person. Breaking the mental headlock the prime had, Jerris grappled physically with it as well. No! Massey was hanging so far off the rigging that she risked falling. She had seen something to stop her heart in fear. Mero was determinedly soaring at the rope as the ship bucked and heaved, a bronco wanting its head. A weaver was now below him, its long, sharp tentacles tearing at him, trying to halt his progress. Blood flowed uninhibited into the water, but the clansman cut on while his legs were shredded beneath him. The rope was almost through. Massey was struggling desperately from the rigging, her eyes locked into Mero below. Recklessly, she threw her knife at the weaver, but it splashed uselessly into the ocean, giving the creature not a moment's concern. She screamed as it looked up Mero's flesh in its mouth. 
Jerris struggled vainly with the prime, trying the same tactics of opening its mind, but this one had learned. The link was too tenuous to sustain that sort of relay. Suddenly the boat surged, bucking away like some wild animal, and finally able to obey the ocean's call. Jerris and the prime were thrown to the deck, and the creature managed to get its long, oily fingers about its neck. It began to squeeze with all its weaver's strength. The light wavered. Dark spots began to appear. With an unearthly scream, Massey dropped from above and plunged her smaller knife into the jugular of the prime. She and Jerris were drenched with blood, but she did not halt until she had ripped its gaping head from its neck, and her arm became exhausted from stabbing at the torso. Jerris slid from under the corpse, just in time to stop her going over the side. Her body was heaving with screams as she tried to get over the railing. Nero's name was on her lips as she dropped the sliver of a dagger to the deck. But he was gone swept away from them on the rope and carried under by ever-hungry weavers. His spirit had flown so that Jerris could not sense it, but Nero's body would still serve their purposes. The girl finally sagged against it, her tears coming in one long moan. Jerris held her for a moment, but then forced itself to be harsh. Little time remained for the rest of the clan. Male form, stern and unforgiving, shook her a bit. Help me, Massey. Don't go to pieces. Help me sail this boat to the cliffs. I thought you were stronger than this. I can hold it calm, but it needs someone to sail it. I need you. She gave him an angry, brittle look, so at odds with the one she had given it yesterday. She had hate now, hate that would not mellow with time, but only grow with consideration. Brushing tears away with the back of her hand, she turned to the sails. So ends the last of this little one's innocence, Jerris thought bitterly. I never thought I would be the one to take it either. Wouldn't you be proud of me now, Ashimi? I hope you've enjoyed this chapter of Weaver's Web. If you want to get your hands on an e or print edition of this novel, you can do so through my website, which is pjvallantine.net. On this podcast, you've heard Ghost Song by Hands Upon Black Earth, which is available through magnatune.com. All other music in this podcast is supplied by T. Morris. Find out more about T at tmorris.com. Thanks for listening.